Hello and welcome to part four of the Fincher Countdown from Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and today on the podcast, we are barricading ourselves in our own secure bunker to review David Fincher's 2002 home invasion thriller, Panic Room. And by we, I of course mean myself and the Countdown crew, Scott Shelton and Jay Habib. Guys, how's it going? It's going well. We have almost made it to September somehow at the time of recording, and it's truly incredible. I have, I have no idea how we've made it this long uh, in quarantine. I, I feel I was I was trying to think back to like when we first started. I was talking to this about my girlfriend yesterday about like, oh, yeah, like when we first started it, we thought it was crazy that some schools were canceling for a month. And now we're here. And it was more in the context of I think of thinking more about movie theaters, like right at the beginning when all this happened, I was like, you know, I won't go to the movie theaters for a little bit, but we'll be back in there in a couple months. And I guess candidly, just to I mean, I went back to the movie theaters for the first time yesterday. Uh, as of the time of recording here. And it was a moment where I was like, you know, five months ago, I thought I'd be back much sooner than this. But two months ago, I thought it was yeah. going to be much later than this. So it's That's a weird kind of, too, yeah. kind of roller coaster of when I was going back to the theaters. And it had been 25 weeks to the day uh, for the last time I'd gone to a movie theater. So it was pretty, pretty special moment to go back, um, check out some like it's got like two weeks ago for the review of the movie that I watched there, um, New Mutants. But it was uh, it was a really uh, important moment. I feel like to be able to for me to sit back down in a movie theater and feel safe enough in the theater because there weren't that many people and everyone was wearing a mask and um, yeah, I don't yeah. Know. I'm doing I'm doing well on the whole. I think. I mean, thank God. I'm just relieved that the hunt does not have to be the last movie that I ever see in theaters because that was I was really concerned about that for for a few months there and like man, yeah. that would have been a really poor note to go out on. But Jay, how are you? How, how are you doing? I'm I'm good too. Uh, unfortunately, as of the time of recording, still have no idea when I'll be back in a theater. Um, but all else equal, you know, still just chugging along. Yeah, and you were mentioning in relation before we got on here, you you were mentioning uh, you in relation to you moving actually, uh, and it having some ironic relevance on this uh, this movie that we're going to be talking about today. Oh sure, yeah, no, the week the weekend before I move into my new Manhattan apartment, I watched a movie on a Manhattan apartment that is broken into on the first night. Uh, you know that was that was not lost on me. I'm guessing you're not moving into a four-story four brownstone, but like I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you are. Maybe you're uh, rolling in it. Nope, <laughs> Scott, uh, I, think, I think you mean townstone. It's yeah. not a brownstone. Come a on townstone. now. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, no, unfortunately, it's probably more like an eighth of the size of the place we saw in the movie. But that, that's okay. Um, yeah. it, it's an exciting it's okay. The time place we saw in the movie wasn't really in Manhattan either. Yeah, there's on, no way. On a film lot in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm pretty sure. There you yeah, go. Yeah, fine place. Um, all right. Well, guys, as mentioned, our film today is Panic Room. Panic Room is David Fincher's 2002 film, and it mar marks a departure from the pseudo-philosophical fight club and a return to the type of sophisticated adult thrillers with which Fincher made his name. Jodie Foster stars as Meg Altman, a recently divorced mother who moves with her 11-year-old daughter, Sarah, played by Kristen Stewart, to a massive new townstone in the Upper West Side of New York City. The house comes complete with a panic room, a secure chamber with security cameras, supplies, and an outside phone line, which can be used in case of emergencies. Meg and Sarah don't imagine they'll ever need the panic room until their first night in the house when Burnham, Jr., and Raul, a trio of burglars played by Forrest Whitaker, Jared Leto, and Dwight Yoakam, come in through the front door set on stealing the fortune that is supposedly hidden in the house. 
Burnham is a burglar alarm technician who doesn't want anyone to get hurt, but the loose cannon junior and the cold calculating Raul soon put that goal in jeopardy when a tense battle of wits emerges between the burglars and the mother and daughter who have barricaded themselves in the panic room. Guys, as I mentioned, Panic Room sees Fincher going back to the well that gave him seven and the game with another stylish R-rated thriller. Does he strike gold like in the former, or is this a more troublesome film like the latter? Jay, we'll start with you. Well, guys, coming into this, I have to say my expectations weren't terribly high because even though I really enjoyed seven, uh, the two movies after that, especially the game, right? Like I just, I did not enjoy that much. That being said, uh, you know, I, I think this was definitely much closer to seven than it was to Fight Club or the game to me. I mean, it, it ended up being a really enjoyable film. Uh, I ended up liking the characters. I liked the story. I liked, you know, some of the techniques that he uh, employed, you know, with the camera and the music. And I'm sure we'll talk about those. But like all in all, you know, like I, I actually like had a pretty good time with the movie. Scott, your thoughts. I know this was the first time watching for both you and Jay, I believe. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I know I can speak for myself there. Yes, I, this is the first time I had seen this film, not even one I really heard of before we really sunk our teeth into the countdown here. And you talked about this is more of a return to the sophisticated type thriller that he made his name on. I don't know how sophisticated this film is, but I don't. But that's also not a dig at the film. Like, I don't think there's anything like super deep or meta really going on here. I think there's plenty that is teased, maybe not unlike uh, maybe a couple other films, but rather than taking a pass at diving really deep into those uh, you know, psychological elements that you might have found in Seven or even Fight Club, you know, successfully or unsuccessfully. I think you don't really get that at all in this film. And maybe the film's all the better for it, because I'm kind of like Jay here, where I really, you know, I enjoyed Seven enough, right? Like, I think maybe it wasn't quite as good as I had remembered in some ways, but definitely still there in terms of the pulpiness of it and the atmosphere and, and the style, so to speak maybe not necessarily as much as the deep substance as I would have remembered. But this film kind of just says, you know what? Don't worry about that deep kind of substance. Here is something that is this really stylish, really um, tense, you know, home invasion thriller where I'm going to give you some interesting characters. I'm going to give you some great performances. And we're not going to worry too much about, uh, you know, a deeper meaning to this type of, uh, to, to this particular type of, of film. And I think it's all the better for it. I think it's, a wonderfully executed movie. It's maybe a touch long, uh, but ultimately, I mean, this was a really good time. Jay says it's closer to seven than Fight Club or the game. I think it's better, more enjoyable than seven. Personally, I like this more than seven. Um, I really enjoyed everything that was going on here. And I think, you know, for better or for worse, right? I think the thing that I would say is that I think that you get similar vibes and you, and it's just so clear, like, Fincher's vision and style is, is right there like it was in Seven, and there's all the strong elements of Seven are also in this film. And then rather than swinging and I think missing in a lot of instances on some of the more deeper elements uh, of Seven, it just says, you know what, I'm not even really going to swing for the fences on this. I'm just going to knock what, what's at the core of this movie out of the park and really refine some of the good parts of Seven even further. And I, and I really think he does it you know, expertly here. It has interesting characters. It doesn't dive too deep in it, which is like a minor knock maybe. But ultimately, it presents you characters that you care about, I think, arguably, even on, on both sides uh, of the panic room. And it's really interesting to see how that plays out over the course of the two hours and really, really well done. 
Yeah, no, I, I think when I use the word sophisticated, I mean, this is more like of a throwback to like old school suspense films in a lot of yeah. ways. This isn't some sort it's an of adult like, home alone. It's really hyper violent. Yeah. Like or like sa sanitized, like PG-13 version. This is very much like a, you know, film for adults, like in the same way that Seven and the game were. But um, yeah, for me, I think this is quite possibly Fincher's most underrated movie. I, like, you know, Scott, you mentioned that you hadn't even heard of it. I think that's probably how a, a lot of people who haven't seen it are. They they may have just not even heard of this movie, but uh, it is, it's a really, really strong genre piece. Uh, like you say, Scott, I think <laughs> I'm sounding like a broken record here, but I think this is another movie that I watched like back in the day on TNT or something. Like, I, I think I have, a, in fact, a very specific memory of like watching this on, on cable. Um, but I've seen this is probably my third or fourth time seeing the movie. And I think this is this was the best viewing for me. I think I appreciated it more than ever watching it this time. Um, and yeah, it's not just the plot and the story, which I think are really well constructed. I think that kind of stuff is really important when you're doing a single setting thriller, right? When you're not changing the location any. And we'll get in to that more a little bit later of why I how I think he's able to make the single setting work. Um, but so there's that element. But um there's also the you know the technical elements like you you mentioned jay the the camera work in particular i think is is really stylish but you know it serves a purpose too i think it's really uh putting you inside the uh the house and um maybe expanding like really making the most of that single setting like I, like i was talking about uh you know with shooting it in, in new and interesting ways um i think the performances are, are really strong uh across the board i really like the way that the three uh burglars their personalities all like complement each other they're all doing something completely different even though like you know jared leto's character is very like dialed up to 11 he's he's a little obnoxious like i think it works because he's clearly a foil to like the other two characters and like he's kind of in this middle place between the two of them which i think is interesting and yeah i think jodie foster and Kristen stewart are both really strong uh heroines here in the film uh it's just yeah it's it's a really really solid movie that i, I wish more people knew about because i think it's a it's a very well done you know sort of nuts nuts and bolts movie that I think doesn't fall into some of the same traps as the game of like just sort of spiraling towards the end into twist after twist or anything like that. I think it's a lot more believable the entire time. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a really strong film. I don't know that I have anything more to add on general impressions there. I do have, I will well, to, that, to that point, Scott, I want to say one of the way that I, I think the way that I described it in my letterbox review for this is that as like, as much as like the game relies on like outlandishness and, and unbelievability in order to get you to this like wild place. I mean, Michael Douglas saying you can't predict the ending because it's just like so far out there and so ridiculous. Yeah. I think really it's like Fincher took a, you know, leaned back in his chair after he made fight club and he's going back to the drawing board around like, what type of thriller do I want to make? And it's like, how about I make the opposite of the game? Because in terms of the thrill, like thrillers and, and what you're doing, like single setting going all like really narrowing down into rather than doing something outlandish or unbelievable, like, this is like firmly rooted in like the land of the believable, you know, thriller types of things like home invasion, like, okay, first night, like, okay, maybe less believable there that happens on the first night per se. But in terms of what's actually happening here, like panic rooms are a real thing. Like these burglars, like, yes, it's maybe rare that you have this like rich grandson trying to, you know, trying to make off with this hidden $22 million or whatever it is. Right. But like everything that's happening in terms of like the exercise of the thrillerness itself is all very believable. And I think that where you're talking about the camera work, 
I think is really just visual effects, right? Like that's not real yeah. camera work being mm -hmm. done. It's actually just visual effects. Um, but yeah, it, it, re it really immerses you in this single setting. And again, just to go back to the point I was making originally, I think it all works really well. Yeah, no, I have a lot of like fun facts about like the making and production of this movie that we'll, I'll definitely get into. But yeah, that that's that is one thing that I, I read about how a lot of those, you know, flashy techniques are actually there's there's, you know, a fair amount of CGI that's used in the film. Yeah. But I mean, the uh, film cost 50 million dollars. It was mostly spent on visual effects, I'd imagine. Yeah. Uh, and it you know, it, it we, we talk about the box office here like. This movie did much better than than Fight Club. This was this movie did really well at the box office. I think made like close to three hundred million worldwide, maybe. Um, Two hundred. Okay, yeah, and made a hundred million in the U.S. Um, so, uh, yeah, he he really like this. This was his biggest hit since Seven when it came out. Um, and yeah, so so at the time it was big, but it just hasn't uh, you know stood the test of time, I guess, in the way that. That seven has, I guess, it just doesn't have that, or Fight Club even, like you know, Fight Club is is much more well known film. I get, I think it just doesn't have like those iconic scenes or characters necessarily in the way that like Seven, you know, they you have what's in the box, you have all of that. Fight Club, you have Tyler Durden, who is you know an, an iconic film character. Um, this movie just doesn't have that, but I think it that's maybe a good thing because it is just you know it, it's a more solidly executed film, but. Um, yeah, so I talked about having some fun facts there. We'll, we'll get into the the performances and the cast now. And uh, the, the casting background on this movie is a little bit interesting because, of course, we talked about during the game that Fincher wanted to work with Jodie Foster, and he actually had her in mind for the Sean Penn role initially. Um, but then, you know, she was too big of a star, and it was going to be too small of a role, and she was doing contacts. So there were a lot of things that didn't lead to it working out. But... Um, Obviously, they they were, you know, he got to work with her here, but, you know, she wasn't actually the first choice. The original film had uh, the original cast was supposed to be uh, Nicole Kidman and Hayden Panettiere playing the the mother and daughter. Uh, the three burglars were cast from the beginning. But um, but then it, it, through strange circumstances, it was really a tale of like two injuries because Nicole Kidman uh, got had been injured from from her time in Moulin Rouge and re-aggravated the injury while they were actually filming Panic Room. And so they had to get someone else to play the role. And as it turns out, Jodie Foster had been directing a film starring Russell Crowe and Russell Crowe got injured and they had to shut production down on that film. So it was like these two injuries uh, led to, you know, sort of the stars aligning and uh, and Jodie Foster being available for this film. Hayden Pantiere obviously eventually left as well, and Kristen Stewart was brought in. Uh, but the, maybe my favorite fact of all is that the scene where Jodie Foster makes the call to her husband's house and her husband's girlfriend answers the phone and, you know, there's a little exchange. That's Nicole Kidman's voice, yeah. actually. Um, I, I noticed that. So, yeah. Um, that, that's kind of a, a fun thing. I definitely did not pick up on that in the moment. But yeah, after reading about it afterwards, that was... That's pretty cool. But anyway, uh, long way of saying Jodie Foster was kind of, you know, she was a big star in the 90s. She had Silence of the Lambs, uh, Contact. These were some big hit movies. There were also some some smaller movies, you know, that don't necessarily get talked about as much nowadays, but were big hits at the time, like Summersby. And there's a couple others that I'm not thinking of. But um, but she was she was a star in the 90s and uh, her star was fading a little bit as it got to the early 2000s. And I think she sort of found a little bit of a niche with this movie and then flight plan, which she would later go on to do as well. Another sort of like 
mid-budget thriller like this um that uh she she was able to have a, a slight comeback there but what do you think long way of saying uh what do you what do you guys think about the performances here of Jodie Foster, um, you know, a, a little bit of an older actress maybe at the time than you would expect to see in this type of film, um, and Kristen Stewart, who obviously would soon become a star, but wasn't yet a star at this point in her career. Uh, Scott, we'll start with you this time. Yeah, it's funny. You go through all that, and you don't even mention that they actually ended up shutting down production anyway because Jodie Foster got pregnant during the Yeah, no, I, I forgot to mention that. But yeah, what, what happened was like that, that she got pregnant. They initially shot all the scenes with her wearing like a big sweater instead of the tank top that she wears in the movie. And uh, and then well, they were, execs were like, nope. Yeah, they were watching it back and they were like, this looks terrible. So they ended up waiting until after she uh, was after she had the baby pushing the film uh, films released back and then doing all the scenes with with her in the tank top as was originally planned but yeah thank you for mentioning that that was uh that was well, it's, funny it's funny because they the whole point was to try to avoid shutting down the filming yeah. to recast the role out of nicole kidman and then they they could have got her to begin with but thank god they were too deep into it at that point i think yeah yeah at that point yeah for sure probably but it's just funny how they picked a new actress that they ended up having to shut down production for anyway mm -hmm. but you know i don't know how nicole kidman would have been in this role i mean they even rewrote the role right like they rewrote rewrote the role for Jodie Foster, uh, making it a, a very different kind of performance. And I don't know how that uh, Nicole Kidman performance would have turned out, of course. But I mean, look, this performance turned out pretty darn good. I think like this is this is a really this maybe is even the best performance in in the four Finch of the four Fincher movies we've watched so far for me. I mean, this really is that good of a performance. It's both um, kind of smart, uh, kind of intellectual type of performance, even along with the sort of physicality that certain aspects of the movie requires. I mean, running through these hallways of the stairs, you know, the final scene at the end. And I liked that it was a little bit, you know, a little bit cleverer of a performance, so to speak, in that there's a little bit of, I don't know what the right word is, like scrappiness about this person that I, that I don't know if Nicole Kidman really gives off nearly as much. I mean, I, I haven't seen Destroyer, which I know is a very different role for Nicole Kidman, but, but it really feels like, you know, Jodie Foster is this kind of person who, gives off the aura and does scrap really hard in this film in different portions. And I kind of like that kind of almost MacGyverness about her uh, in the film uh, for the lack of a better way to describe it. And I think it works really well for this character of this, you know, this mom who has this child who's diabetic, who they're kind of good compliments to each other almost in, in a way like they're not total. They're definitely not total opposites, but they, I think they play off each other really well. Like I was actually really surprised by how good their chemistry was between her and Christian Stewart, but I really do think Jodie Foster, um, as good as some of the other performances are, really puts the movie on her back and carries it, you know, from start to finish almost. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I did my homework, so I, I I read all that stuff about Nicole Kidman too, and uh, yeah, and just imagining how this film, like, like you guys have both already said, you know, would be just different, you know, given you know, yeah, like Scott, like you said, I don't think Nicole Kidman necessarily would have brought the same level of scrappiness to the role. And from what I read, it's, it sounded like the way it was written originally was the, the mother character was just like much more of like an afraid person um, rather than this person, you know, who's like diving around the corner and setting up these traps. And like, you know, I, I think I'll also agree that Jodie Foster's performance is probably my favorite in the Fincher countdown so far. Um, Kristen Stewart. I mean, like I, weirdly like i don't think i've ever had a strong opinion on on like a child actor performance just because i don't know they're, they're kids um and you can interpret that how you want but um I, I i do think they like work really well together and like you know i i, I thought the performances were like great on a, uh, on a whole and 
Scott, again, like, like you're not to, not to keep repeating what you say, but I think Jodie Foster very much does put the film on her back, even though uh, there are some, you know, good performances uh, within the thieves and whatnot. Yeah, no, I, I think what y'all are, are saying is like, is, you know, yeah, the, apparently they wanted, you know, Nicole Kidman, who who is more, let's be honest, she's more of the, like the glamorous movie star. She has that look more than Jodie Foster does. They wanted that that role of, you know, maybe more of a damsel in distress almost than the yeah. role ended up being. Uh, and I think it, it just, it makes it more believable and, and makes the character stronger, right? Like we, we've talked about how, you know, both in the Nolan films and in a couple of Fincher films so recently, the female characters haven't been, uh, you know, as strong of strongly written as, as a lot of the, their male counterparts. But I think by allowing her to be more clever and uh, and intuitive, like she's able to, um, you know, become a, a pretty strong character by the end. Whereas I think like, you know, if she's portrayed as like the damsel like okay yeah maybe eventually she like grows out of it fights back or whatever but i don't know i still feel like that's a little bit of a reductive portrayal so i think it all worked out in the end to be honest with you with with getting jodie foster to be available for this movie honestly i like silence of the lambs is a movie that i have you know said multiple times that i think is one of the most overrated movies uh of the last you know several decades uh i don't even really like jodie foster's performance in that movie but like contact and this movie like contact especially is is wonderful but this movie too is is really really good and so i you know i definitely have come around on her more after seeing those two films but um yeah i think she's really strong and i love kristen stewart's performance here as well i i think that um yeah like this is the whole you know we've been saying this for years about like Robert Pattinson and Christian Stewart, like the fact that don't judge them based on Twilight, right? Because they not only like, you know, in the case of, of Robert Pattinson has done a lot of interesting projects since, um, since Twilight has come out, but like you talk about Kristen Stewart, she's done interesting stuff since Twilight has come out and beforehand, right? Like she, she did panic room. There's some other films that she was in as like a, you know, a, a younger, um, actress i think was adventure land like before all of the twilight films i'm not sure but um anyway she she's been doing interesting work her entire career i you know i'm not a fan of the twilight or anything like that but like you know good on her for getting paid and then like being like okay now i'm gonna go do whatever i want and being in a bunch of like olivier assayas movies and stuff so um i don't i don't hold that against her or anything the fact that she chose to you know go go get some bread um for for a few years you know kind of like dakota johnson did with uh with the 50 shades movies and now she's doing a lot of interesting stuff too so um i but i think she's really good and yeah the chemistry between them is really really makes this film click i think like it's crazy to me that like both of them kind of like fell into this role and they weren't like initially paired as like here's the mother and daughter pair that we want like because they they're so believable not just like in the way they act but like even their, their looks right like and i'm sure that some of that is intentional they they made them look somewhat similar but like when they're standing there next to each other like at certain points in the movie it's like yeah i i truly believe that i could be looking at a real mother and daughter right now so i think again another maybe fortuitous thing that worked out for them that they ended up having two actresses who have sort of a physical resemblance and um and yeah, I think I think she's also a strong character, like and very resourceful as well. Um, and and so I think Fincher did a really good job with with both of these characters and, and with their casting for sure. But um, as far as the burglars go, so I, I've kind of you know said that I, I really like the way that their personalities kind of um, 
you know, contrast each other. Like on paper to me, this is some of like the strangest casting. When you just look at these three names together, like you have Forrest Whitaker, who's like a very, you know, Oscar winning prestige actor. Stoic. Jared yeah. Leto. Okay. He's an Oscar winning actor now, but still you don't think of him in that way. You think of him as like American from American psycho and Joker and, um, you know, a bunch of other films like that. Um, you know, Suicide Squad. he was in Fight Club. Uh, yeah, yeah, sorry, not Joker, but uh, I get all the Jokers mixed up now. But uh, yeah, Suicide Squad. You think of him as the Joker. Um, you don't You don't necessarily think of him in, uh, you know, as like on the same level as Forrest Whitaker. And then you have Dwight Yoakam, right? Who is, yes, he's an actor, but he's more known for being a country singer. Um, and I think like, so it's, it's a weird trio. And, you know, they cast all of them from the beginning. Like this was the trio that they wanted. But it strangely works out really well on screen because you have, you know, you have Forrest Whitaker being like the, you know, he's like the the guy with the heart of gold a little bit. He he's like, I don't want to hurt anyone. Like, um, you know, he's he's a lot more composed. He's trying to avoid confrontation. And then you have, you know, you have Jared Leto, who's a loose cannon. He's running around screaming and yelling and beating stuff up and punching the walls and all this stuff. And then you have like the you know the unknown quantity and Dwight Yoakam as Raul who is just sort of like the silent assassin that like is obviously just very cold and ruthless and like will do whatever it takes uh to get his hands on this money even if it means hurting people so I think in the end like I said the the characters all end up complementing each other really well but uh guys what did you think about these three performances Jay we'll go to you first yeah, I mean, I think for the most part they work well. I, I think I'm I'm decently high on two of the three, um, and the what I'm not like Jared Leto and Cornrows is just like one of the most terrifying yeah. things I've seen, and I've seen him in Suicide Squad. Um, th- this this was weirder. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know some of, some of the jokes also just like like his joke specifically like didn't really land with me. Like I'm I'm thinking of like you know. And I know they correct some of these, but like, you know, like 14 day escrow, it's almost three weeks. And like, obviously again, they correct it, but like, it just, it just didn't land. And like, you know, how do you live in New York and not have a single Percocet? Like, I don't know. It just, I, I, I don't know. It didn't, it didn't yeah. really land with me. I, I, I think they like work well as like an ensemble. Um, and like, and for the most part, I think Jared Leto's fine when he's like, you know, uh, again, just kind of like screaming and just, you know, kind of feels like, you know, like a rat running around or what is it? Is it a cockroach running around with his head cut off? I can't remember the expression, but a chicken, um, chicken. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm, I'm mixing my, my metaphors here, but cutting off a cockroach's head would be such like a, like minute surgery. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I blanked. Um, in any yeah. case, I, I mean, and the other two, you know, I, I think are great. Um, Forrest Whitaker. I actually really haven't seen that much of him. I know we've talked about like, you know, how like, critically acclaimed he is both when we did rogue one and now here and like i think those off the top of my head i'm not sure if i've even seen him in anything else but like i liked him in that i liked him in well, not so much in that but i liked him in this um and dwight yoakam too like you know i i thought was you know a good you know third part you know like that cold ruthless assassin type of the cast i, th- I think as an ensemble they work well even if you know in some of the individual moments i thought leto was kind of eh yeah, it's interesting on Forrest Whitaker, I will say, like, I, you know, I, I bring up the fact he is a prestige actor, all of that stuff, Oscar winning, but he wasn't actually really that at this time of his career. Like, he would go on to become that. Obviously, Last King of Scotland was the movie that he won the Oscar for in 2006. But, like, he, you know, he, was, he wasn't, like, a, a super known quantity at this point when he did this movie. I mean, he had been in this movie called Ghost Dog in the 90s, which is kind of a cult classic, like, 
kind of martial arts type action movie, I think, uh, which, you know, he, he had the lead role in that. But otherwise, you know, he was in like Battlefield Earth, which obviously one of the most notorious bombs of all time. He wasn't he he wasn't that quite yet. But I think watching that with hindsight, when you, you, you know what he would go on to become is is interesting and adds something to the performance as well. But Scott, how, how about your thoughts on these performances? Yeah, I think Forrest Whitaker is is like excellent in, in this movie, honestly. I think he's really good. I think when I was referring earlier about characters on both sides of the panic room that you care about, I mean, I think you care a little bit about Forrest Whitaker's character at the very least. And, you know, it's not just a conflict between Jodie Foster and Kristen Stewart against these three robbers, these three burglars. It's a conflict between Jodie Foster and Kristen Stewart and the three burglars. Yeah, And then there's conflict between these three burglars simultaneously. You talk about these different personalities mm-hmm. rubbing up against each other. It's, it's more than just having contrasting personalities. It's they all have very different ambitions and have very different sensibilities in the way that they feel like they should be treated. Yes. Jared Leto look like the guy is always going to be cast in roles where it seems like he's just screaming all over the place. And I mean, maybe American psycho is, is like the exception, I guess, from the films that I've seen, but you know, between suicide, like between suicide squad and, I mean, the brief appearance that he had in, in Fight Club and all these other films that he's been in, you know, I guess Dallas Buyers Club, I guess, would be again. He's like, he's over the top, I think, is the is the way to talk about it. He is over the top in a lot of movies, even Blade Runner, right, which is like more of a like restrained yeah. movie. Like his character is kind of like the, you know, a little more over the top scenery chewing type performance when he is on screen. That's true. Honestly, that's, that just seemed like a screen test for Morbius to me. His Blade Runner 2049. I mean, yeah, he has that too, yeah. Yeah, so he's doing these out there performances. A lot of it's over the top, but over the top in different ways, I guess. And and this is no exception. Like I don't know if it's just like the the roles he's pigeonholed himself into. I guess Dallas. I mean Dallas Buyers Club again. I think is a little bit of the exception there. But um, I think overall, though, like he's good because I think that's like kind of what this character requires for me. Like he's a spoiled rich, you know, grandson of a like a billionaire. It sounds like, and he wants to like steal this money under his like family's nose and he feels entitled like it, it feels like this character is an outlandish character in terms of that like out there connections outlandish but like an out there character like he's a spoiled rich kid and he wants what he's owed or whatever right and he's like putting together this ragtag bunch of group and he thinks he's smarter than them and thinks he can screw them over and just take advantage of them and it bites him in the ass in the end of the day and so i actually think that the over the topness of this particular performance is almost i don't know i don't want to necessarily say it's necessary but it feels like it fits the character. And I, again, I think it contrasts really well to the very grounded performances, although in different ways, of Forrest Whitaker and Dwight Yoakam. And, and in different ways, like I said, they're very grounded characters. Forrest Whitaker, I don't know if I go as far to say he has a heart of gold, but he, he doesn't mean yeah. to do any harm, certainly. At least not to anyone, like any physical person, right? Like he understands that this is just some like old dead guy's money that you know, no one knows about and is grand. It's like, it's, it's still his grandson's money, right? Like it's still, it's not like he's like really stealing from anyone in his mind, probably. And he's just getting paid. Like he's just getting paid for it. And then Dwight Yoakam over here, obviously um, the junior character thinks of a certain way about, about this character and the way he treats him. And Dwight Yoakam, you know, just bides his time, bites his tongue and eventually, you know, lashes back when he's had enough. Right. And I think that these are very grounded characters and going back to the whole groundedness, I think of this film overall, and the believability of this film overall, I, I think it checks a lot of these boxes. And I think that these characters and their performances match up quite well. Honestly, and I, I think that all three of them do a good job. Maybe Forrest Whitaker, the best of the three, uh, Dwight Yoakam, and then Jared Leto. But again, I, I, I rate all these pretty highly, actually. 
Yeah, I do want to have the conversation in a little bit about Forrest Whitaker's character because there is almost the question of like, is he too good at being empathetic in this role? Ba you know, again, I, I do. I am going to bring up some stuff sort of about the, the sure. behind the scenes that y'all may already know, but um, regarding this character, that maybe that wasn't exactly the look that they were going for with this character. But I agree. I think he is. He's he is really good, and he is whether he's supposed to be or not. He is, uh, you know, a little bit empathetic and. Um, and there's a real tension, right, in the interactions between these guys, especially, uh, I mean, spoilers, but especially once Jared Leto is out of the picture, right, when you have just him and Dwight Yoakam, there's this real tension of, like, who is going to give way, right? Because, like, you, there's a sense of, like, something's got to give between these two guys of, of, like, you know, Raul being, like, we'll do whatever it takes. I'll hurt these kids. I'll kill them. I don't I, I'll hurt, you know the mother and daughter, I don't care. And Forrest Whitaker of like, no, I'm literally going to give the insulin shot to, to, uh, to Kristen Stewart so that she doesn't die. Um, and it's like, who's going to give way, right? Like is, is Forrest Whitaker going to be able to get through to, to, you know, Raul and, and be a little bit more, you know, pragmatic about it. Or is, uh, is Raul finally going to test, uh, Burnham and make him, you know, turn violent when he doesn't want to be. So I, I really like, that yeah it's not just the interact it's not it's not just the tension between the burglars and the mother and daughter but also the internal tension between themselves too that i think adds a really interesting layer to the movie as well and i i think all all three performances are, are good but i wasn't sorry to see jared leto go when his character got got ice but um yeah i mean also by the nature that he gets removed from the whole picture like an hour and like halfway through the movie basically is he doesn't wear out his welcome yeah. too much yeah, no, very true. But and I mean, look, even when he is in the film, he gets his come up and solidify. You know, he gets his face burned, which is I think is a really cool scene. Again, the the like CGI is not like like it's a little cheesy, but like I think it adds to to the movie. Like especially that that fire sequence, like it is kind of goofy CGI, but like I, I like it. Like it's it's fun to it's watch. Two thousand two CGI. Yeah. I mean, what more do it's you like, want? You know, it's like watching Spider Man. It's like watching the Sam Raimi Spider spider-man movies like does the yeah. cgi hold up no but i think that like the goofy sort of schlockiness of the cgi actually sort of adds to the charm of the movie hey, sa same year as this film and same writer mm -hmm. so there you go oh yeah true well uh, what's the name cap yeah um yeah so uh but that's that's it as far as the cast really there's no one else really in this except for nicole kidman and uh and then the actor who plays the the husband but um but moving on to the technical aspects, we I just kind of talked a little bit about it there. Do y'all want to spend, you know, just another minute maybe talking about the the visual effects, the production design in particular? They actually like built three different panic rooms for this so that they could shoot the different camera angles that they wanted. Um, I think they just did a really good job with constructing the house in a way that, you know, allowed for a lot of the scenes to make sense and 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 to take place. And so, you know, and and the the tension of like her having to run out of the panic room to go get the the cell phone and you know getting the insulin and all of that stuff. I think the production design is a big factor in in why that stuff works because you have a real good sense of place and like here's where she has to get and you know here's the the gap that ha they have to close and all of this stuff. I think all that is really well done. Anything that you guys want to say on that in particular, just kind of open it up to both of you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what you just said about, you know, like knowing exactly where she has to get when she's diving out to get the insulin. Like I I mentioned this when we talked about Seven, even though, you know, we had some conflicting opinions on whether or not this was like a good thing and or intentional in one of the chase scenes. But like to me, the 
like a, a good like chase scene, you know, like you know exactly where everyone is or exactly like where you're kind of what you're exactly gravitating around. And I mean, like you said, like the production design is such that I like I have a very clear sense of where she's going and what she's doing and where everyone else is in relation. And I thought, you know, that was that was that was that was you know, you're obviously working within a small setting, so you'd think it'd be easier, but you know, still well done nonetheless. And then, you know, in terms of the camera work, like I'm I did you know, really enjoy there's like, you know, when the when the break in is first starting, there's a very like long shot, probably some of it CGI, though, you know, maybe not probably CGI where, you know, it, it's it keeps like zooming into each entrance and then zooming out and moving to like the back and then zooming back out and then looking to the ceiling. And, uh, you know, again, like most of that is. Yeah, CGI. Yeah. And so, you know, giving me giving me a good sense of, you know, where we're at, like, again, like in, enjoyed that. And then, you know, as for all the the, the major like you know zoom in enhances like through the keyholes and into the locks mm. and the vents and all that like I, I went from thinking no, that's that, real they, they definitely have the cameras go through the keyholes uh-huh. um, <laughs> and I'm saying you know that what I was saying about that was just that I went from thinking you know this was like okay to like a little too cheesy to like okay fine like it like it, it makes the movie work you know kind of I, I guess like you know you said in like the it's 2002 so you know it, it, it looks you know super CG and just like kind of cheesy, but like, I, I think it does lend itself well to the movie. Uh, even though I might've doubted that for a little bit in the middle. I do think that it uses more practical effects and I actually don't think it looks as cheesy as you guys are saying. I mean, yeah, the, the fire scene for yeah, sure. I mean, I guess that's what they're blowing the propane yeah. like that. I mean, the that blue is flames and all that stuff. Yeah. 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 I have no idea how that would look like if you actually set off a propane tank like that in real life. I mean, I'm sure they didn't mess that up too much. But uh, I, I think overall, yes, like that was I mean, that really felt like the only one that was like really CGI heavy. I mean, otherwise, it's, it feels like a lot of practical effects. I mean, even the keyhole stuff, a lot of that is zoom. And then you complete the shot with with uh, with the with the visual effects. So it's like a mix of practical and visual. And, and like I said at the beginning, I think it all works really well. Like, yes, is it cin- is it cinematography, quote unquote? No, but I think that one of the things about this film so well is that, again, going back to the grounded nature of it is that it takes you through the house at the beginning, you know, throughout the whole time. It's not one shot, obviously, but it's really taking you with the characters through the house. Yes. It has to cut sometimes. And I think you still get lost a little bit in this house. For example, when she's trying to run around it and find the syringes uh, for her, for the, for the, uh, I guess is it diabetes that she has. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. yeah. Uh, So I think that I got lost a little bit there, but the way that they're able to do the, the closed camera or closed circuit uh, cameras, there and where you can watch everything i think that is that whole like surveillance nature of it i think really pieces a lot of the puzzles together around you know geographical placement of people in the house etc cetera, etc cetera. um i think that's more recognizable just from the closed circuit cameras more so than the actual work they do taking you through the house over and over but i like that they still try to do that and still try to get you there right to see to help you understand where everyone is like physically in the space even though for the most part you're just going to be watching them on the CCTV uh, for some of the most critical parts of the film. And it, it works well for the most part. Some of the chase scenes, I still think I get a little bit lost, but uh, that's also because they're probably getting a little bit lost too. Cause the house is so freaking big. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I like the, uh, the opening. I, I even though it's like, there's some like very sort of hand wavy, like uh, foreshadowing of like, we're talking about the door closing and being like, the door, well, you know, automatically uh, won't close if there's something in the way, unless it's like within however many meters or whatever of the, you know, the ed- edge of the door. And you're like, huh, I wonder if that's going to happen later in the film. And of course, you know, it does happen because Dwight Yoakam gets his finger jammed in the door. But um, yeah, I think that it's still effective, right? Because it is so like it efficiently sets up 
the the whole plot. Like that's something that's really important to me in, in movies like this is like how efficiently can you get us into the action, get us into the plot. And I think they do a great job, right? Like it it's a realistic setup of like, hey, this guy's taking them through the house, you know, uh, uh, because they're thinking about buying it. Of course, he's going to be explaining all this stuff in the way that he is. Um, and so it kind of you know, serves a dual purpose of like, it makes sense in the context of the movie. And also it's a way to get exposition across and foreshadowing all, and all of that stuff across to the audience. Um, and, you know, but, and it doesn't wear out its welcome. It's five, 10 minutes, whatever. They bought the house, they're in the house. Good, we're ready to go. Um, and uh, that's all it needs. I don't think we need to spend 20, 30 minutes, you know, just with, with expositional backstory and all of that stuff on these characters. That's not the type of movie this is, but Moving on to to the the plot a little bit, and and I do want to talk about the single setting a little bit more because I think it does. I think he he does know what to do with it. I think that um, obviously this isn't a new you know thing, n- new idea for suspense films. I mean, we bring him up. It seems like every single episode of this podcast, but Hitchcock, um, you know, with movies like Rope and Rear Window, you know, he he sort of patented the. Uh, the the single setting thriller type thing but i think so till i kind of share my thoughts i think that the key when you're doing this type of movie is like because it is like the same setting you're not you're not changing the location or anything you got to keep it got to keep us interested and so i think that fincher does a really good job of that by constantly raising the stakes right throughout throughout the film there's it's it's not just it's not just like this tete-a-tete between them like they're in the panic room, they're out here. It's just like this battle of them trying to get in and, you know, them trying to stay safe or whatever. There are all these other elements that he he adds into the movie. Like just when maybe you're starting to, it's starting to drag a, a, a tad, he introduces like, she's got to go out and get the cell phone or now she's having a diabetic attack um, or the husband shows up and now they're threatening the husband and they're, you know, they're saying, you better come out now or we're going to hurt the husband. Um, and, and he's saying no and all this stuff. I, I think he knows, I think Fincher is very smart. And he knows exactly the right places in which to, you know, turn up the heat a little bit, to turn up the the pressure pressure cooker um, so that we're, we're constantly entertained. And, you know, he's expanding the setting, like I said, like they have to run out and get the, the, the stuff and, um, you know, the, the burglars are, uh, all in different parts of the houses and the vents and drilling and all this stuff. Um, and so I think he does a good job of keeping it fresh and interesting throughout. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I, so I, I think that you're, um, I think you're spot on with how he talks about like, you know, if you're going to use the single setting, you got to do it smartly. You got to, and you got to keep people engaged in that way. And I think this is, goes right to the point that you're making. I think one of the most effective ways he does that is like two thirds or, yeah, about two thirds away from the movie, he inverts it right where like Jodie Foster is now outside the panic mm-hmm. room and the burglars are inside the panic room. Um, and I think that that really, I think that if, if you are lulling a little bit in your interest or your focus uh, on, on the film, I think it, that really kicks things up a notch and reengages you. Like, oh wow, it's like it's they flipped the script now basically, and she's now going to set up these traps for when they exit the the panic room a la almost home alone like that that's what probably the part that reminded me the most mm-hmm. of home alone um and i think that that's really really effective and and you know do i need sort of like the final fight scene the way it goes down at the end uh no maybe maybe not i mean it definitely gives you that one last shot of adrenaline to get you through the last five ten minutes of the film but it's really satisfying when forrest whitaker uh blows dwight yoakam's head off i mean that's like a pretty satisfying moment in the movie so overall there in terms of keeping you engaged and just kind of finishing off the point that you were making. I think that Fincher knows exactly what to do to your point. And 
yeah, he does things like, okay, she's got to make a dash out and dash back in. So it's like teasing you, right? Like first, the first step is getting her out of the room and then she jumps back in the room. And then the next step is she's out of the room and now she's out of the room and it's flipped. And, and then everyone comes out of the room. Of course, is obviously what the finale is going to be. And it all works smoothly and keeps you engaged the entire time, or at least it did for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you both have said it well in terms of, you know, how he, uh, you know, uses like, like, like you said, Scott, you know, he, t- he kind of teases Jodie Foster getting out of the panel room first. The invert I think works really well. I think the only part of it that like really kind of takes me out of it for a little bit is when she's trying to shoot the cops away. Um, like, I, I don't know, that might be the mm-hmm. only moment where like, I don't actually feel the fabricated tension there. I'm kind of just like, okay, like, you know, waiting for this to get by, but the rest of it, you know, again, like, you know, with, with, you know, first like teasing you're coming out and switching it and the traps, like you said, like home alone, like all that, I think it, you know, it, it is enough to like keep me engaged, even though we are, you know, primarily I mean, exclusively in one setting for like, you know, 95% of the movie. Yeah. I don't think yeah. you'll really even need the cop scene to be honest. You could take that film. You could take that scene out of the film probably. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll mention that too when I talk about how I think the movie actually should have ended. Um, but yeah, I, I, I get that you kind of need that to set up the fact that the cops will show up at the end. And right. Like, you know, but, you know, I don't necessarily think, I, I wouldn't necessarily have wanted the movie to end that way. So maybe that's also why I'm like, ah, I didn't need that. Yeah. So that was the question that I kind of had, a question that I kind of had was like, so are, are we to assume that like, even despite, you know, the interaction, they still didn't like buy her story or whatever. And therefore they, they brought the cops back to the house later because I don't know that it's totally clear on like why the cops do show up again at the end. Um, after she ostensibly has like convinced them that, Hey, there's nothing going on here. Um, and they like get in the car and leave, it seems like, but then they do come back. So I don't know. That's, that's a little bit of a, a hole there, but, um, I don't know if it's a whole so much as I think the way she like talks to them right at the very end, if they ask like, you could give us a signal or something. She like does talk to them kind of strangely. Yeah. I don't know like, if it explains yeah, you guys why are good at your job or whatever. You guys are real good. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would definitely set off alarm bells. If I were a police yeah. officer in that situation, does that mean that I'm going to come back with a SWAT team and break into the house? Mm-hmm. Like, maybe that's a little bit of a leap but i don't well, think she's it right the fact that they come back with the swat team i think is meant to imply that like they did take a message or like the alarm bells did go off in their head right otherwise like why would they have come back yeah. like, in full force with a swat team yeah, yeah. even if it does yeah. seem a little bit flimsy like to me like i mean that that's how i read that at least like yeah i, I think maybe like a couple lines of dialogue or something could have helped just like maybe fill in that gap a little bit but uh, yeah, that's that's kind of a minor complaint, but Scott Scott Harvey wants more exposition. Oh my goodness! <laughs> no, I I hey, look, I'm not opposed to exposition. Just got to be done done correctly. I mean, look, uh, Inception has a lot of uh, Inception has a lot of exposition, but I think it's done pretty well. But um, yeah, so so I do want to spend a, a minute as well on the the character, like the the female characters, because we do often talk about you know the probably the weakness of some of the female characters and, and, you know, some of the recent Fincher films we've talked about as well as, you know, a a chunk of the Nolan movies as well. Um, And I think we're probably all in agreement here that that this is the exception. Uh, Do you guys want to say anything more about why is it just the fact that they're, you know, BA fighting heroines, like kicking butt and everything, especially in the case of, of Jodie Foster. Do you think there's anything more to it than that? Uh, Jay? No, I mean, I I think that's, that's primarily what it is, at least to me, but, you know, not, not to like 
give this movie too much credit. Um, but you know, I, I think about the fact that if you consider that this was like 2002 and I mean, I you know was pretty young in 2002, I can't remember exactly what like, you know, social commentary around, uh, you know, female roles in movies was like at that point, but it feels like, you know, it, I, I at least imagine that this was probably like one of the more like strong female roles of the time. Um, and, you know, considering it in that, in that context is like, is cool to me. Like, I feel like if this movie was made in like 2019 or 2020, I guess, like, you know, I, I feel like it's all, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's just more to me, like powerful having been done in 2002 than say in 2019, 2020. Sure. Scott. Yeah, no, I think, look, it, it's absolutely the exception is as, as hard a time as we, I think had given Fincher and all three of his films so far. I mean, at least I have, I don't I, I know maybe we were, splitting hairs on on seven or, or varying opinions on seven but i think that he's not had a good female character in either in you know, any of his first three films and he has a really good female character uh whether he stumbled into it by the forced recasting or not i'm not i'm not sure um but overall like i, I think jodie foster is the best female character of the fincher films that i've seen there are some exceptions that i haven't seen uh, but she's really strong right like we talked about this person as sort of being this like object, honestly, like this object of feminist here, like heroines. You don't really often see these types of characters too often. I don't know if, look, I, I don't know what you call initially like the standard role, but like, look, if you, if you have like a male director and a male writer, you're probably not going to have the greatest female characters even today. Like, right. Like that's, it's not an, it's not just, just an artifact of, of 20 years ago. This is still the case today. And I think that the fact that you get a character like this with the, I, I don't even want to say undertones, like the overtones of feminism that go along with this character and this performance and this, um, again, like kind of scrappy battle of survival. Like, I think one of the things that you look at, you, like you think about this four story townstone, brownstone, whatever you want to call it. I, I was kind of making a joke earlier then you literally took it to heart. <laughs> um, but like you take, you take this house, like that is like, that is in every sense of like a stereotype, like that is a man's house. Right, this is not a woman's house, and the fact that that you have these two females going to this house, you know, at first they need to get their bearings, like they are essentially absconded into the panic room. But then by the end, Jodie Foster is like going through the house, setting traps, setting these guys up, and taking out these men. Like that is that I think is a real again flipping the script, not just in terms of the the, the single location setting, like I was saying, but flipping the script on what you expect from female characters in these settings, in these types of movies. Like like this Jodie Foster role is like. If you wrote this genderless, like every Hollywood executive would put a man in the role, right? Like every single one of them. And I think that the fact that you have Jodie Foster playing that role, the role is written in the way that it is for her and and how it ultimately comes out and, and this final product of, you know, from start to finish. Um, I, I think it's I think it's a really strong female role. And I think if you look across the the movies that we've watched, I mean, I think really only, uh, you know, Interstellar probably rivals it in terms of female characters over the last couple of countdown series. Yeah, and, and I like the fact that we, like, get the husband character, like, he shows up, like, oh, here comes the husband to the rescue, and then just does completely nothing, right? Like, he gets beat up, he just is, you know, sitting there in the living room, basically, for the entirety of the movie, so, like, the Shoots whole, and like, misses four times, or whatever Right, the whole, yeah. like, I'm gonna come rescue you, like, the male savior type thing is completely, like, put to bed when once he shows up, because he, he doesn't do anything, and she is the one who has to get them out of it in the end, but... um Moving on, Scott, you, you talked just a second ago about the like largeness of the house. And I think if there's any any part of the movie where it goes a little bit deeper than just your surface sort of like genre, um, 
stuff. It, it's maybe like so. So Fincher made this movie because he had been reading about a lot of wealthy um, people buying houses in panic rooms and how panic rooms were becoming kind of a uh, uh, standard feature in a lot of like you know wealthy upscale houses like this. I, I said I, I corrected myself because y'all are uh, y'all are city folks. You, you know these terms better than I do. Townstone, brownstone, whatever. But this was becoming more of a trend, um, and so he he wrote he wrote the movie for that reason. And, and I I just wonder if you guys think there's anything there in terms of like is, is he saying anything about like the the necessity of panic rooms or like because because I feel like there's almost a level of. I don't know, like these things just seem like trappings, right? To add add on to an already like overly extravagant house, a house that is already too big for the people who are living in it. Um, and then you, you have this panic room, which kind of is supposed to do this one thing. But once they are actually in the panic room, in the in the type of situation wh- where, uh, you know, they are, it, it, is, it is envisioned like that you would use the panic room. It, it doesn't really turn out to be as great as they would have hoped, right? Like the, the phone line isn't set up like the, which yes, that's her fault. But the, you know, she starts having diabetic attacks, stuff like that. The panic room basically isn't as safe as, uh, you know, you, you might think it is. Do, do you guys think that there's anything there in terms of like, is he critiquing maybe the the tendency of, of wealthy uh, houses and upscale houses at the time to like have features like panic rooms that, don't really serve a lot of purpose and are kind of just, you know, overly extravagant? I'm not sure. I mean, that's a, that's a good question. And I guess if you wanted to like, I don't know, like peel back that layer, like you could, you could see something along the lines of maybe like, Oh, like, you know, you're, they're not actually as safe as you think they are. Like, like, I I don't, I don't really know. I, I, it's not that I don't want to give Fincher credit for like, you know, thinking or like having a subliminal message like that. I just, you know, can't necessarily see one myself. Like a lot of things in this film, in terms of like deeper subject matter that contingent have to do, I, I think it just touches some things on the surface and and doesn't get you to worry too much about it overall. It's it's even less than a half-hearted attempt, and I don't think it's even a real attempt to make you think too much deeper. There is the comment about Poe at the beginning, Edgar Allan Poe, and this sort of. I was looking into this a little bit because I didn't get the reference, but this idea of being buried alive in this panic room is like sort of a, you know, getting buried, like locking yourself into a panic room is like basically entombing yourself um, before you've really died yet. Right. And I think there's maybe something to think about there, but I'm not even sure if Fincher is that interested in getting you to think about it. Cause he just doesn't really make much of an effort to, to do much more with that in any sort of at least overt way throughout the rest of the film, or at least not again, not in any way that I picked up. And again, I think that's probably fine. Like, I don't know if it needs to, to do that overall and like maybe scott maybe you feel differently because i know you've seen this film more than once and so maybe it's something that you've thought more about but again i think it's a lot of surface level type um brushing over and doesn't go any deeper than that yeah i mean i don't know that i feel any differently than y'all i think i was just trying to you know in in thinking about what what we could you know could talk about for this movie discussion topics for this movie i was just thinking about is there any area where he is trying to go a little bit deeper here than just like making a, a straightforward thriller. And, you know, like I said, he did make the movie after reading about a lot of, you know, wealthy houses that were, you know, having panic rooms and stuff like that. So I don't know if that was something that was on his mind at the time. And yeah, if you, if you watch the movie, you could definitely, uh, you know, uh, lodge an argument that 
yeah, they're not as safe as uh, as you know that you would hope in a panic room, right? Like all all of this stuff, like it doesn't seem like there's really any food in there or anything. Like you know, again, she's diabetic. Like they don't have the supplies that they need in there. Like if you are actually in the type of situation that is envisioned, would a panic room keep you safe? I don't know. Or is it just a thing? Maybe for, if like, your phone was plugged in. If your phone was plugged in, yeah, that would that would probably have uh, have made this a very short film, but. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Or is it just kind of a thing, you know, that you're like, look at this cool thing I have in my house or whatever, you know, like, look, I have a freaking bowling alley in my house or something like that. Is, is it the same thing? I, I don't know. I, again, I, I'm not saying that I necessarily believe that. But in thinking about whether there are any sort of deeper ideas going on here, that was just something that that came to mind. But yeah, and, and I think it's something that he could have explored. Again, I think that we yeah. could be sitting here and having a deeper conversation about it if we'd give, been given a little bit more to chew on and think about. But he really just gives you this idea of like, oh, panic rooms, rich houses are putting them in. Like, is this like a again to your point here? I guess is like, is this a element of extravagance that they don't need, or is it just the rich people thinking they can protect themselves from one more thing? whether and, foolishly or otherwise. And there is like one brief line at the beginning too, right? When she's with her friend at the house and Jodie Foster is like, oh, we don't need all this. Like this house is way too big. And she's like, you can afford it. And it's kind I, of like, he, okay, actually, but, he can afford it. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, <laughs> the but, funniest but, part, but still like, yeah. it, it's the whole like, okay, like you can afford it, but do you need it? I don't know. Uh, that That's maybe another place yeah. you can read something into it there. But Anyway, I don't think we need to spend any more time on that. Let's let's just move on to the ending now, because I think in particular, I want to talk about what happens with Forrest Whitaker's character, because in the test screenings for this movie, um, the the audiences were not exactly happy with the fact that he gets arrested and taken away at the end of the movie. Right. Um, because he was made out to be a more sympathetic character and everything. And so they actually went back and re-edited parts of the movie so that he would seem more or less sympathetic rather um they didn't like add any new scenes or anything new to the character they just like edited around uh what they had so that he would seem less sympathetic and i don't know if he if he is like i, I would love to see what the original cut looked like because i think he's still a pretty sympathetic character uh so i, I guess i want to ask you guys do you think do you do you have any sort of uh you know weird feeling about the fact that even though he he does kind of rescue them in the end right like he he gives her the shot when he could have easily just left her to die, he ends up killing Raul. Um, do you have any weird feelings about the fact that he still goes down uh, for for the crime ostensibly, and and you know is going to be going to jail, even though his intentions weren't terrible, at least not compared to the other guys? Yeah, I think it's a case of you know he's gotten he got into something that he thought was, I mean, ultimately harmless, right? Like he thought he was breaking into an empty house to steal, you know, a few million dollars for someone who's it was their grandfather it's like it's not even like i said earlier it's like in some ways i think you can even mentally get yourself to a place where it's not even really stealing like the money is still staying in the family it's going to this grandson like obviously the grandson is kind of stealing money from his, his other relatives here but in the grand scheme of like relative crime you're committing it's not that big of a deal and also like the intention behind his crime is to like give his daughter a better life or, or whatever it is right like he's also divorced i think and um, just trying to provide for his van, like his, you know, his daughter in that situation. And then over the course of the film, like, obviously he's doing these things where he's trying to finish his, finish the job. Right. But he's trying not to hurt some, some them sometimes, at least most of the time it feels like. And 
as you see the like plot progress, he's like being essentially pressured into doing things or realizes that he's party party to things that are out of his control one and two, not what he originally intended. But I don't think that absconds you from like the, you know, yes, you, you, you could have been more evil, but does that mean that you deserve to be rewarded for being less evil than the other people you're committing your crimes with? Like, I don't know, maybe that's not meant to be a loaded question. I just think that, you know, he's still on the hook. Like ultimately if he walks out that door at the beginning, nothing like no, no bad things happen to that family because they will never even get close to opening that panic room door. And so he's still liable for that, even though he maybe in some instances, um, not even like, not even arguably like in some instances, like he does good, good things at the end of the day. Like he kills Raul before he kills Nicole or not Nicole Kidman's character. Jeez, Jodie Foster's character. Um, and, and he saves the day in one sense of the word, but he also is, you know, a big reason why there was a problem to begin with. And I don't think that uh, lets you off the hook necessarily. And and he's the one, I, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, who like kind of has the idea to like rough up the husband, right? So that that will force them to come out of the panic room. And even though he's like, don't kill him when, once he's doing it, like I yeah. think he, he doesn't have an issue with him getting, you know, beat up like he is. But um, yeah, I'm they, not sure about that. Like, like many things are doing, like the propane, I think he he's on board with it, but not to the extent that Roll takes it. But again, I don't think that yeah. it's got, I, I don't think that um, gets him off the hook for it. Jay, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, so if this was real life, you know, you're like, of course, like, you know, like being good in a very bad situation that you're helping perpetrate does not absolve you of guilt or like wrongdoing. Um, but because this is a movie and because, you know, they, they do spend a fair bit of time, you know, making me sympathetic towards Forrest Whitaker's character, which again, like I, like you would be curious to see, you know, what exactly did they remove? Cause I still really kind of wanted him to get away yeah. with it. Like in my mind, he, he gets away with like 20 of the 22 million and like leaves 2 million with Kristen Stewart as like an apology. Or something. And how great is that <laughs> shot by the way of him, like with the, with, you know, letting go of the money and it all like yeah. flattering, flying in the wind. That's like the best shot of the movie to me. It's, it's like a good very shot. dark night. Yeah. yeah. The wind whipping the cape or whatever. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was sad. Though. I was like, I, if nothing else, I wish he'd at least gotten away with like a million or something. I don't know. I like to me again, only because it was a movie. I was like, yeah, right. like, I hope he gets away, but he doesn't. And like, I mean, I guess the implication we, we don't actually see it. You know, is like he ends up in jail, and it's like, like again, like obviously, like you know, IRL. You're like, I right, like you shouldn't have ended up in that situation. You shouldn't have like perpetrated this thing that was happening. But like because it's a movie, and because you know we were even if they try to tone it back, you know, meant to sympathize with this guy. I'm like, you know, I, I kind of hate that he like, you know, got caught. Yeah. I mean, because it is a movie, like you're saying, Jay, you, you almost are waiting for like that dramatic moment where Jodie Foster like comes up to the cops and it's like, let him go. He saved us or whatever, you know, like he, he, he helped us out. Like you can let him go, even though like, that's not how the law works. Like you don't, you can't just like not press charges against somebody for burglary. They're still going to go down for burglary if they committed burglary. But um, anyway, yeah, I, I see what you're saying, but I don't know. I think it, I think it's kind of a nice little, like almost like a little nasty twist at the end. The fact that, Hey, like we're not going to, you, you, you can't bail yourself out just because you like, you know, you had a good conscience in the end. Like, you, you did a bad thing and, uh, you know, we're not going to let you off the hook for that. So I, I, I kind of like that. I mean, look, Fincher, like he, look, talking about Seven, like, you know, that, again, that movie has like one of the nastiest twists of all in the end. Um, very, very ruthless and, and uncompromising. And obviously that's not quite on this same level, but, you know, in the, in the same way, he's not giving you quite the like pat happy ending that like maybe most audiences would want, even if like, 
everything turns out okay for Meg and Sarah, at least. All right. Well, there you go. That is our discussion of Panic Room. Uh, guys, I think we can move into our wrap-up now. Favorite scene or moment from this film? Jay, we'll start with you. Sure. I'll have to uh, just describe it uh, to keep okay. with our, our PG rating here. But it's uh, in the in the first intercom scene, once after, after Jodie Foster and Kristen Stewart get into the panic room and she's saying, you know, like, get out of my house. And then Kristen Stewart says, you know, say F. And then she says, oh, F. Yeah. it's like, no, get the F out of my house. I, I thought that was really funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Scott, how about you? Yeah, that, that's one of the moments where I think the humor works. I think there's like one or two moments where the humor doesn't quite work, where it just feels like kind of off-putting to be in this middle of this massive burglary. But that is one of the, the moments that I, that I thought was pretty funny. I you know as, as goofy as maybe the the CG uh, is in, in this one season, I like the the scene where she lights the propane. Oh, like, yeah. like she's like throws it back at him. And uh, I think that's a, that's a really cool scene. And then I guess another moment of, of levity coming between the mother and daughter. She's like, Promise me you don't do that ever. Don't don't ever do that. I'm just like a little. <laughs> I don't think she's gonna be Josh that, and yeah. do that anytime soon. Uh, don't have to worry about that too much. Uh, but no, that, that that's a really good scene with a, with a funny a funny moment. And and again to go back to the point of like like feminist you know heroes and in, in films like it's it's very Tom Cruise Mission Impossible like to just stick your your lighter down you know into a vent where you know there's just a bunch of propane gas and light it on fire. So uh, good on her. Also, the writer of Mission Impossible, David Kep. There you go. There you go. Um, yeah, no, I, to finish this out here with another moment of levity that I liked, uh, towards the end of the film, right, when actually uh, Burnham and Raul end up in the panic room with Sarah and, and uh, Meg is on the outside, she, like, destroys the cameras. And when she destroys the camera, Raul just goes, why didn't we think of that? And it's like, yeah, why didn't you think of that? Y'all were actually kind of dumb in doing that. So making a joke was... about it does not absolve you of having, of like making yeah. your character so dumb that they didn't do that. But that's just me. Yeah. He was too busy, you know, sledgehammering the wall, like the ceiling underneath the panic room, thinking that he was going to get through it. Well, yeah, they were too worried about getting the money. Maybe that's the, the point there. They were so worried about getting into the money that they didn't, you know, think about, hey, how are we going to like, get away with this and deal with this other problem that we have with these people being in the house. But I mean, we didn't talk about this at all, but the funny part is that they're all worried about having been recorded on camera with these cameras. There's no, there's no VCR tapes in yeah. the cameras. They weren't even being recorded. Yeah. Um, okay guys, let's, uh, let's put a score on panic room. Uh, a little bit of a comeback here for Fincher. It seems after a couple of maybe Rocky outings for sure. Um, like I said, before we reviewed or I think maybe last week or when we did the game, I was like, this is we're we're hitting the sweet spot now. Like they're gonna they're gonna get really good from here on out. Um, I, I haven't seen Benjamin Button, but other than that, um, but uh, Jay, what do you what what is your score on Panic Room? Yeah, I mean, like like you said, you know, it is a bit of a comeback for him. Enjoyable film, eight point two. Scott, yeah, I think Jay and I are on uh, almost the same wavelength here. I'm a little bit higher, but not too much. Eight point five. Eight point eight for me. Re- really good, really solid thriller. Um, and again, not a lot of people know about it. So, like, if you're if you're into this type of movie, and and I don't know how many people are into this type of movie anymore, because like we had the conversation with uh, when we watched Seven, like, does this type of movie get made anymore? And I think you can have the you can ask the same thing about a movie like Panic Room. Maybe it gets made. Put Charlie's Theron in this film, and it's getting made for sure. Yeah, but but I don't think it would do as well. Maybe is is the larger point I'm trying to make it as as Panic Room did here. I don't know, but uh, maybe. I would like to see more movies like this. And like 
searching, you know, from a couple of years ago, another sort of like, uh, you know, more stylish. This is way more approachable than searching though, I'd say. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I know what you mean, but um, I don't think we need to go down that road. Anyway, 8.8 for me. Um, it, it, it's really good. Like I said, probably Fincher's most underrated movie. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad we had this chance to talk about it. Um, all right, guys, that should do it for this episode of the Fincher Countdown. Uh, don't forget to support Some Like It, Scott. Uh, we are on Patreon, patreon.com slash pods. Also, rate, review, like, subscribe all of the things that you do on your podcast app. Check out everything else in the Some Like It Scott feed, uh, including Some Like It Scott and Champ's Lunch uh, that we have over there. You can subscribe to our newsletter. Um, and yeah, c- continue to, to support us in whatever way you can. And we hope you will be back for our next episode on the Fincher Countdown. I'm excited for this one. We're going to be talking about the 2007 true crime drama Zodiac. Uh, But until then, for Scott Shelton and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time.